0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Jerusalem, the storied sacred city that inspired kings and prophets back through the millennia and forward toward hopes, dreams, wishes, and faith. I'm Renee Garfinkel, and this is the Van Leer Jerusalem Series on Ideas. History and religion, politics, and ideology have a great deal to say about Jerusalem, And so does today's guest, Andrew Lawler, whose new book, Under Jerusalem, The Buried History of the World's Most Contested City, takes us underneath the city to join the archaeologists who explored the holy city's material past. Andrew Lawler is the author of several books, including the best-selling Secret Token, Myth, Obsession, and The Search for the Lost Colony of Roanoke. His work has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the National Geographic. He's a contributing editor for science and for archaeology magazines. Lawler's work has also been chosen to appear in the best of science and nature writing. Andrew Lawler, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Renee. It's
0: certainly a pleasure to be here.
1: Before we begin, Andrew... Tell us a little bit about yourself. Was there someone or something that strongly influenced your intellectual development? Well, I'd have to say
0: it's the person that I dedicated this uh, latest book, uh, Under Jerusalem, to. Um, And uh, she was an American, uh, the wife of an American Foreign Service officer. And when I was a Washington reporter... Uh, One day I ran into her at a reception and she said, hey, I'm going to go to uh, Syria to visit my daughter who works at the embassy there. You want to come along? And I said, no, but thank you. And then after I ran into her the third time, she wouldn't take no for an answer. And that that launched my career writing about archaeology in the Middle East. And I've never really looked back.
1: And is there a special fascination that you have for Jerusalem? Many people do. It has it casts a spell on people.
0: Well, actually, for me, it was the opposite. I, I ran kicking and screaming away from writing about Jerusalem in the beginning. Why? Well, precisely because it is so filled with religion and politics that I found it too daunting Uh, I prefer to write about uh, ancient sites in, say, Iraq uh, that were buried 3,000 years ago. That seemed a lot simpler, but maybe I got older and more foolish. But one day I was visiting Jerusalem with an archaeologist friend of mine, and he took me underground. I had no idea what was going on, and I was hooked.
1: Well, I can understand that. <laughs> uh, I, actually, when I first heard of your book, I thought this author really has a lot of courage to to take on the challenge of talking about archaeology and history and Jerusalem. So let's start talking a little bit about your book. You, you begin with an uh, archaeological find in 1863, Were there no archaeologists in Israel before the 19th century?
0: Well, keep in mind that archaeology is a pretty new scientific discipline, and you can't even really talk about it as as a scientific effort until the late 1800s. But nevertheless, as early as the 1700s and early 1800s, you had Europeans who were digging. Now, mostly they were digging for treasure, but gradually they began to be interested in the history of what they were finding and the stories that these objects could tell. Uh, to move beyond just digging up gold and silver and uh, instead see excavation as something that could reveal something of, uh, of the human past. And so the first person that you really can say did that in Jerusalem was uh, this, this, this French character, uh, de who managed to get the very first legal dig permit from uh, the people who were then in charge, and that was the Sultan uh, in Constantinople, in Istanbul. And so this Frenchman arrived in 1863, and he began to dig. Now, Politics was already a part of the story even before he put the first shovel into the ground. Why? Well, because he was uh, a friend of uh, the French emperor at the time, Napoleon III, and the sultan in Istanbul, head of the Ottoman Empire, wanted to be friends with the French. And one way to do that was to say yes when the senator showed up and wanted a permit to dig uh, at an ancient site just north of the old city. And so from the very start, uh, archaeology in Jerusalem was deeply wrapped up in politics. And then very quickly, it became wrapped up in religion.
1: And now let's, uh, let's take a moment to uh, set the political stage of, uh, of Jerusalem at, at that time. Uh, the uh, Jews were the single largest group of residents of the city, half of the city, the other half were a combination of Christians and Muslims. As you mentioned, the Ottoman Turks were occupied, but the politics was even more complicated. Can you tell us about other international involvement?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So the eighteen sixties was, was really a turning point in the history of Jerusalem. Why? Well, because this is the point where European powers, uh, that is, France, Britain, Germany, they're all competing around the world to create vast colonial empires. And the the biggest plum uh, to be plucked in the minds of the Europeans in that day was the Ottoman Empire. Uh, it was going through hard times. It had not kept up with technology uh, as the West had. And increasingly the Ottomans were dependent on uh, the French and the British and the Germans Uh, for their funding, to build railroads, and to modernize their army. So they found themselves uh, in thrall to these Europeans. Now, most of these Europeans, of course, were Christian, uh, the leaders at the time. And so they saw Jerusalem as a really handy place to uh, keep an eye on the Ottoman Empire. Because as a, a place that had many... Christian holy sites, uh, you could argue that uh, that Europeans had a right to be there uh, in order to worship uh, at places like the Holy Sepulchre, the traditional tomb of Jesus. So this made Jerusalem a hotbed not just of history, but also of modern day, that is, 19th century politics.
1: So that was France, Germany, England, and... Uh... Wasn't Russia also involved at the time?
0: Yes, absolutely. I shouldn't leave Russia out of this because uh, the Russians actually posed the greatest direct threat to the Ottoman Empire. Uh, Russia had expanded to include most of the area north of the Ottoman Empire, north of uh, what we would call Turkey and the Middle East today. And uh, as a result, the Ottomans were eager to make alliances with the French and the Germans, and the British, in order to offset uh, the Russian power, which uh, they viewed as somewhat threatening.
1: Yeah, we don't want to say too much about uh, history repeating itself, but uh, there we have the players.
0: (laughs) Well, we could say the more things change, the more they stay the same, as the French say.
1: (laughs) Sadly, that's the case. Um, And now, another thing that well, maybe it wasn't the same at that time, uh, but uh, something that is very current, in recent years, is the crime of looted antiquities making headlines. Were, were there always laws against it? Did uh, did the countries of origin not understand that they had a claim on their own archaeological finds? How how did that work back in the nineteenth century?
0: Well, at that time, uh, what was under the ground, were, if it was valuable, it was treasure. And there wasn't a sense of, oh, this belongs to me. Uh, there was more a sense of, well, if this is valuable, then you know maybe it should stay in my country. But if you're willing to pay me for it, I'm happy to sell it to you. And Jerusalem at that point, uh, being controlled by the Ottoman Empire, uh, really was not a place known at that point uh, to have lots of easily accessible treasure. Uh, What it did have uh, was quite a bit of history above ground in the form of the ancient shrines that were there. But this began to change in the 1860s when the Europeans began to dig in Jerusalem with the permission of the Ottoman Sultan. Now, the Sultan could care less, really. He didn't really care about... Uh, the history or uh, the religious past in Jerusalem. His job was simply to keep the peace. And in his mind, that meant giving the British or the French or the Germans or the Russians what they needed so that the Ottoman Empire would remain stable.
1: Now, the English and the French uh, at the time were excavating in the other Middle Eastern countries as well, Uh In fact, I was uh, very surprised and interested to read in your book that the earliest artifact that mentions Israel was not found in Israel, but in Egypt. Can you tell us about that story?
0: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, That was a British archaeologist, uh, Flinders Petrie, who actually, uh, at least— his body, uh, minus his head, is actually buried in Jerusalem, uh, just outside of the Old City. His head, you can find uh, in London. Uh, just a little detail <laughs> there. But Flinders Petrie was arguably the the the, the first true archaeologist. He understood that if you dig down through the layers of soil, then you can read the past. You're not just extracting uh, interesting artifacts, whether it's a statue or a coin, but you're actually going back through the layers of history and can piece together what took place over time. And he pioneered this actually at a site uh, not far outside of Jerusalem, but he really cut his teeth on archaeology in Egypt, and that's where he found uh, an ancient mention, the earliest no mention time of Israel. And this really excited uh, lots of people in the West. Mostly Christians, because remember, at this point, uh, a lot of Protestants were fascinated by the Old Testament, and they were drawn to archaeology. They put the two together, and they created what we still today call biblical archaeology. And of course, Jerusalem became a center of this new discipline.
1: But it was uh, easier, or at least less fraught, Uh, to dig in Egypt and uh, Mesopotamia, and also more likely to yield dramatic finds like statues. Why was that?
0: Well, that's certainly true. Uh, We've all been to museums and have seen the the wonders uh, produced by ancient Egypt, whether it's a mummy or or a statue of a god. Uh, Mesopotamia, of course, produced... Uh, incredible numbers of ancient tablets, uh, along with palaces, etc. So yes, these were the two great urban societies of the ancient Middle East. Now, by, by contrast, the Levant, or the area of what is now Israel, and the surrounding uh, area was, was really not a highly urbanized area. This was not a place where you had a big river moving through it that provided lots of uh, agriculture to make, to make you wealthy. Uh, Instead, it was uh, on a smaller scale. So while uh, the the Levant certainly can boast lots of ancient cities, uh, it never had anything like the the wealth and power that you found in in ancient Egypt or Mesopotamia. And as a result, uh, there simply wasn't the revenue to produce the kind of uh, uh, fantastic goods that uh, you see in these other ancient places. And then, of course, there's another piece of that, and that is that in, in the ancient Jewish tradition, uh, to sculpt a person uh, was was taboo, and therefore you didn't have a lot of investment in uh, massive statues uh, that you had in places like Egypt. So as a result, uh, biblical archaeology had a had a really tough uh, a tough road to hoe because they weren't going to produce the same kind of treasures that made Mesopotamia and Egypt such a magnet for early archaeologists.
1: Yes, well, Jerusalem certainly didn't have the uh, wealth and the material pleasures uh, that the other uh, ancient Middle Eastern centers had. But one thing they did have, which was religion. And that interested the uh, archaeologists called uh, Warren, who was a member of the Masons or the Freemasons, whose members actually still today, identify with the builders of Solomon's Temple. What was Warren looking for, and uh, how did he deal with the concerns of the local Jewish population?
0: Charles Warren is one of the more fascinating characters that I I came across uh, in learning about the people who, uh, in a sense, created modern Jerusalem by digging up its past. First, you had the Frenchman I mentioned, Jezalzi, who— began by digging up the Tomb of the Kings. And in digging up this tomb that was considered an ancient Jewish tomb, he really upset the local Jewish population. So uh, as soon as archeology span began in Jerusalem, it began to create, um, let's say, controversy, uh, and even violence because people didn't like the idea of these foreigners, particularly Christians, uh, coming over and digging up ancient Jewish tombs. Uh, you know, Who would want uh, a foreigner digging up their their uh, ancestors? So when Charles Warren arrived, he had to be very careful because he, he had to find a way to dig without upsetting the Jewish or the Christian or the Muslim communities, and that, that was not easy. And in fact, He found a pretty clever way around uh, this problem, and that was this. He was told that he could not dig near the noble sanctuary, what Jews call the Temple Mount. This is the third holiest site in Islam, and the governor, being uh, being an Ottoman uh, and a Muslim, wanted to protect this site in particular. So Warren was not going to be dissuaded because, as you mentioned, he was a Mason, and the Masons were... were and are fascinated with Solomon's temple, uh, the temple that's mentioned uh, in what Christians call the Old Testament. Now, uh, he wanted to dig in order to find physical evidence of this building described so vividly in the Bible. However, he could not dig on top of the Temple Mount, so what was he going to do? Instead, he dug some distance from the walls of uh, the city's Acropolis. He would dig straight down, and then, when the Ottomans were looking, he would simply tunnel his way to the base of the walls. And this was a really clever way for him to get important information about the age and the uh, the nature of these, in, these you know, incredible massive walls that uh, you know, still are a major feature of Jerusalem's old city. In order to do this, he had to really work his way through a lot of older foundations of buildings uh, from medieval times and more ancient times. So he used um, gunpowder in order to blast his way through some of these areas and thereby setting off explosions that people could hear around town. So the word got out among Muslims that this crazy Englishman was trying to blow up Uh, the noble sanctuary, the third holiest site in Islam. And this, of course, did not endear him uh, any more to the Muslims than the Frenchman had endeared himself uh, to the Jewish community by digging up uh, Jewish graves. So you can see that science and religion uh, from the very start were really uh, in opposition to each other uh, in Jerusalem, and that remains uh, often the case.
1: Hmm. And I guess you can also say that uh, archaeologists or Europeans uh, didn't worry too much about the sensibilities of the locals. Um, uh, Well, they worried about it, but they felt entitled to go around them in some kind of way. Yes, absolutely.
0: Um, uh, Charles Warren actually was, was sued by a Muslim family that argued that he was wrecking the foundations of their home. They lived uh, close to what is now uh, the Mugrabi Gate uh, near the Western Wall Plaza. And uh, they took their complaint directly to the British government. But the British government directed it, the complaint to the Palestine Exploration Fund, which was exactly the organization that Warren worked for. And in fact, he was on their board. So he was able to uh, swiftly dismiss the complaint. And thereby, you know, creating real hostility that that remains to this day uh, between Muslims and those people who did, whether they're they're Jewish or whether they're Christian. So. Uh, people of of faith had lots of reasons to be suspicious of these Europeans who arrived, not least because most of them, all of them in the early days, were Christians who were were bent on focused, they wanted to focus on their ideas about religion and often to the exclusion of the ideas of the people who actually lived above in the city.
1: And each of the personalities were distinctive. You uh, you describe them and uh, very well in the book. You really get a sense of the different archaeologists and their personalities. Um, one that's quite different from Charles Warren was Conrad Schick. Uh, he had different kinds of relationships with the locals. Interestingly, he was a member of the London Society for Promoting Christianity Among Jews. So people of science were also people of faith tell us about Schick
0: Conrad Schick has to be one of the most uh, interesting people who lived in Jerusalem in the 19th century and he began as a uh, a missionary, a Christian missionary from Germany who uh, came to Jerusalem to convert Jews now that didn't go over very well there weren't many Jews that were really interested in being converted to Christianity Uh, And so he tried to make a living as a cuckoo clock repairman uh, because cuckoo clocks actually were quite popular with Muslim families then. But, you know, he didn't make much of a living doing that. And eventually he became a builder. And today, walking through the the streets outside of the old city, you can encounter many of his architectural marvels. Uh, He created uh, innumerable buildings that still uh, are part and parcel of Jerusalem's architectural fabric. But while he was building, in order to to dig a foundation, you have to excavate. And so through his excavation, he became fascinated with ancient Jerusalem that lay just beneath the surface, pretty much wherever you dig. So Schick really became the mentor for a whole generation of, of British as well as French and Russian and German archaeologists who followed behind him in the 1880s and 90s. Uh, And Chick himself, uh, who was a Protestant, played a very interesting role in uh, determining whether or not the Holy Sepulcher might, in fact, be the actual uh, site of uh, the burial of Jesus.
1: That's still a touchy issue today.
0: Absolutely. I mean, he. uh, So what Sheikh did was he partnered with uh, with a Russian uh, uh, archaeologist and uh, cleric, and the two of them began to dig just mm, just east of the Holy Sepulchre. You know what? So the the question was this: the Holy Sepulchre is obviously located toward the center of today's old city. Now the Gospels, the Christian Gospels, say that Jesus was buried outside the walls. And of course, by Jewish law, uh, you know any burial takes place outside the city walls. So if the Gospels were correct, then how could the Holy Sepulcher be located within the city walls? So this was a, a huge controversy among Christians in the 19th century, because by then you had all kinds of tourists, people like Mark Twain, one of the first American tourists to arrive in Jerusalem, Uh, who all wanted to see the place where Jesus actually was crucified and buried. Now, uh, the Holy Sepulcher was not a very convenient place for those Protestants, partly because the Protestants were Johnny-come-latelys. The Orthodox Christians and Catholics had already carved up the Holy Sepulcher, and there was no room at the inn, as it were, for those Protestants. And plus, it it, it had a a kind of... um, a feel that didn't appeal to Protestants who preferred their very clean churches and and images of a, of a nice garden where Jesus was resurrected, in, according to the, the Gospels. So Schick set out to find the truth. And he and his Russian colleagues found an ancient city wall that lay just to the east of the Holy Sepulchre, and they determined that, in fact, this was the wall that was there during the time of Jesus. Therefore, the Holy Sepulchre lies outside of ancient Jerusalem's walls, not inside, and thereby he bolstered this religious tradition. Uh, At the same time, he really upset a lot of his Protestant friends who really didn't want uh, Jesus's tomb to be in the Holy Sepulchre because of uh, its Catholic and Orthodox implications so you know I think it's a wonderful example of a man who despite his deep faith went with the science and was able to uh, get the data determine that this tradition you know, had some validity to it and then move on rather than to try and uh, twist the truth
1: that was a very significant uh argument, uh, debate. Uh, now, um, so far we're still in the 1800s and, uh, it's European and Russian and English archaeologists, but by the end of the 19th century, the first American archaeologist came and how was Frederick Bliss different from his predecessors?
0: Yeah, Frederick Bliss was, he, now, he worked for the Palestine Exploration Fund. This was the British organization that Charles Warren had worked for. But Bliss was a very different creature. Uh, he wasn't interested in furthering uh, the British Empire. He wasn't particularly religious. And he also had a very strong academic background. In fact, his, his father had helped found the American University in Beirut. So he grew up speaking Arabic. And he knew the Middle East very, very well. So unlike many of his European colleagues, uh, Bliss came to Jerusalem with uh, a deep knowledge of the region and without a lot of um, uh, bones to pick, shall we say. So his job was to find the city of David. Of course, I'm sure your listeners are all familiar with the city of David. Mentioned uh, in the biblical text is the, the place where uh, King David Uh, and the Israelites conquered uh, a Canaanite city, made it uh, David's capital, and then it was glorified by Solomon. Now, if the biblical text were true, then there should be lots and lots of remains of what clearly is described in the Bible as a a really sensational city that was at the center of a a small but thriving empire uh, during the days of the United Kingdom. Say, sometime maybe in the in the 9th or 10th centuries BCE. Now, the job of bliss was to find this mysterious place, because up until that point, no one really had any idea where it was. It didn't seem to be under the current old city. Uh, and so he began to tunnel his way from Mount Zion, uh, just south of uh, today's old city walls, Uh, And then across to a little um, peninsula of land that sticks out from the city's Acropolis, from the Temple Mount or Noble Sanctuary. And that's where he and his colleagues encountered some pottery that seemed to predate the ancient Greeks and Romans. Uh, So he was pretty certain that he had found what is really the truly the old city of Jerusalem, Jerusalem. That is the area that we now call the City of David, uh, that Muslims call uh, Silwan, uh, located just south of the Temple Mount. So this was a really exciting find that was a a game changer in understanding Jerusalem's past.
1: So you'd think that he was motivated by scientific curiosity or historical motivation? What... He was not. He he lacked the religious motivations of his predecessors. What uh, what kept him focused?
0: I think uh, Bliss was uh, one of the first real professional archaeologists to work in Jerusalem. Now he had studied under Flinders Petrie, the man we mentioned earlier who had pioneered some of the uh, uh, the great advances in archaeology. So Bliss Bliss was really a scientist, and he was going to go where the data took him. Uh, he was very open minded. In uh, fact, he got a lot of advice from Konrad Schick, the German that we mentioned. And he also learned a lot from uh, the Arab workers who had worked for Warren and other Europeans. Because tunneling in Jerusalem is a very, very dangerous endeavor. Why? Well, the city is built on limestone, but limestone is easily pocked with channels and uh, watercourses and all kinds of natural caves, which when you combine it with thousands of years of the city being destroyed and rebuilt, lots of stone chips uh, that come from lots of quarrying, it means that the soil under Jerusalem, which seems so solid, is actually uh, not. And that in a moment, as Charles Warren famously said, the, the soil under Jerusalem can turn from rock into water. And that leads to collapses and that can lead to fatalities so uh, bliss had to be very very careful in doing his extensive tunneling because uh, of this danger and he learned that from uh, the the people of uh, the men of Silwan who for for more than a hundred years were really key players in doing the the heavy lifting of digging uh, in Jerusalem all the way up until the 1980s
1: they did the heavy lifting but um as I learned from your book, uh, the Muslims and the Jews as well in the mid-19th century, they didn't share the Christian enthusiasm for biblical archaeology. Why was that?
0: Well, there are lots of reasons for this. And I, this actually was, for me, a really fascinating rabbit hole to go down because it helps to explain why Jerusalem today uh, is, is such a contested place. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, for, for Muslims, the idea of digging below in Jerusalem just didn't seem to make sense. Now, if you're looking for water or treasure, then great, it makes sense. But why would you have to dig to look for your history? And I spoke with, uh, with one uh, Palestinian historian who said to me, you know, We are our heritage. We live here. We know who we are. We know where our holy sites are. Why would we want to dig up the past? Uh, we want to improve uh, our holy sites, maybe make them larger so that they can accommodate more people. But the idea of digging below just is a foreign concept. It actually is a concept that comes out of Europe. So it's a, it's a concept that's familiar to Christians and uh, to Jews uh, who come from European tradition, but it is quite foreign uh, to Jews and Muslims and Christians who uh, come from a Middle Eastern tradition where, in a sense, you are your heritage. Your traditions define your cultural heritage, not the objects that lay underneath your house. And this is a fundamental difference that I think is very important for people to understand uh, when we talk about uh, Jerusalem's past and this, uh, this, this desire, this appetite that Europeans and then later Americans and and of course Israelis have for for digging up the past.
1: Uh, well, that's interesting. I, I'm glad you clarified that. So it, it isn't really a religious motivation or a difference in religious perspective. It's a difference in regional. Uh, Worldview, or or perspective, or lens—the lens through which you you look—that um, I'm glad you clarified that. A, however, you know, I, I, can
0: add, I can add that in the this was yeah. true in the 1930s that at the time when the British uh, controlled Jerusalem, uh, they had there was a an, a cultural heritage department, archaeology department, and it was split pretty evenly between uh, between Jews and. Uh, And between Arabs, both Muslims and Christians. And it's interesting because when you go back and look at who was publishing what papers, uh, the scholars who were uh, Arab, that is Muslim or Christian, they were interested in cultural heritage. They were interested in the buildings above ground. Whereas the Jewish scholars were publishing papers that focused more on archaeology, that focused more on what lay below the ground. Uh, So this is a a distinction, a difference that uh, has persisted for for more than 100 years that I think uh, is critical to understanding the the fights that we see today over uh, who owns what is below the surface.
1: Hmm, the fights go even further when you move into the 20th, 20th and the 21st centuries. Um, it, talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were discovered in the 1940s, and then there were a lot of uh, political uh, hassling about them, uh, un, really until the late 20th century. Tell us that story.
0: Well, this isn't something that I I went into any detail in the book about, but uh, I I think what's important when it comes to the Dead Sea Scrolls is that Jerusalem is always the place that antiquities dealers go to find uh, the good stuff that uh, Bedouin had brought in from the desert uh, or uh, anybody who's just exploring outside of Jerusalem. Uh, From the 1800s on, Jerusalem was a center of the antiquities trade and you know, given that Israeli laws compared with, with other countries' uh, laws about uh, antiquities trade are, are, are pretty loose, uh, it remains a place that tourists can go to and walk home with a piece of the Holy Land. Uh, now, whether that is a, a fake piece of <laughs> the uh, uh, scrolls that uh, are alleged to have come from the Dead Sea or whether it's a Roman spear point, uh, it really doesn't matter. Uh, Jerusalem is a place where people come and they want to take home a piece of the past. And often uh, those simply are fakes. Um, That was true back when uh, Shapira, who was uh, uh, an antiquities dealer, lived in the 19th century, was hawking his own uh, version of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, up until today, where just recently, uh, of course, the uh, Museum of the Bible in Washington has gotten in trouble uh, for a series of artifacts, so some of which uh, probably have their origins, fake artifacts, probably have their origins there in the Holy City.
1: What was your impression about the uh, authentication process with uh, archaeological finds? Not only not only in Jerusalem or in the Middle East, but also elsewhere.
0: Well, it, it Jerusalem, I think, is is rife with some of the best examples you can find. Uh, for example, uh, there was a famous pomegranate that was found uh, that many claim to have been part of the Solomonic Temple. Uh, later, this was shown uh, pretty definitively, although there are still some people who disagree, uh, to be a fake. And the, the, the desire by both Jews and Christians to retrieve uh, a piece of Solomon's temple or of Herod's temple really inspires uh, those people who are creative and making fake artifacts uh, to produce something that can fool even the experts. Now, fortunately, we have technologies now which can, can almost stay ahead of those people who are creating the fakes. Uh, But nevertheless, there are innumerable cases in Jerusalem alone of an artifact surfacing that it claims to have been part of uh, one of the ancient Jewish temples that turns out, in fact, uh, to be a case of wishful thinking, but typically involving millions of shekels along the way.
1: Uh, So so, um, am I right in understanding that you see it more... Uh, the issue of authentication is more like um, fake detecting fake artwork, a painting that is uh, said to be uh, done by Michelangelo and and turns out to be an excellent fake, and not that we are unable to really determine the age of artifacts.
0: Well, it depends on the particular case. Uh- But now with new technological innovations, we can often peer into say the crevices of a carved stone and determine if the mold or mildew uh, or spores or pollen that 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 are wedged in those crevices actually are of an ancient date or show an ancient date. That simply wasn't possible say 50 years ago. So now there are a lot more ways that we can authenticate these artifacts And I think it's important to do so because we don't want to fill our museums with fake objects that simply reflect what we desire to find. We want to show what we actually do find because that can reflect more uh, interestingly and accurately on the past.
1: Yes. And also, uh, although there's a lot of science in archaeology, there's also a lot of narrative. We we are making up a story or supporting a, a narrative that we have or we prefer uh, by small pieces of material findings that either support it or make the narrative false. So uh, it's it's a tricky business.
0: Absolutely, and. Particularly in a place like Jerusalem, that kind of incremental uh, addition to knowledge is, is often uh, swept aside in favor of the dramatic find that will get headlines. Uh, I mean, the most I think the, the, the most hilarious and although it was a quite serious uh, case uh, was in the early 1900s when this British aristocrat named Montague Brownlow Parker set out to find the Ark of the Covenant. Now, he pretended that that's not what he was looking for, but he got millions of dollars from investors uh, and managed to bribe Ottoman officials so that he could dig beneath Jerusalem in order to find the ancient temple treasures. Uh, He expected to be able to sell these on the open market for the equivalent of several billion dollars in in today's money. Uh, So, you know, this is big business uh, to, to find these kinds of artifacts is so compelling for religious as well as scientific and artistic reasons. And the Ark of the covenant from that point on has been a major focus of some of the the zanier excavations that have taken place in Jerusalem.
1: Well, I'm glad you brought that up because, and, and this will be my last question because it's a kind of hard one to answer. And that is why, do you think the popular imagination is captured by search for ancient, especially biblical artifacts like the Ark of the Covenant? I mean, you have the classic Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, with Harrison Ford, that is a classic and people watch it, and the the appetite for this material, ancient archaeology. Seems endless, even in the popular imagination. Why? Why do you think that is? Well,
0: Raiders of the Lost Ark is an interesting example because, uh, according to one version I've read, the idea for the Ark as the as the MacGuffin, as they say in the in the movie world, as the as the kind of motivator for the plot, actually came from a Chicago dentist. (laughs) The screenwriter went to the Chicago dentist who kept talking about the Ark, and I think the Ark has this particular power because so many of us in the Judeo-Christian tradition grow up with this story of the Ark uh, being paraded around its, its incredible power, its mystical power. It's, a, it's uh, an electrical circuit to the gods, uh, uh, according to some. Uh, you touch it, you die, according to the biblical text. So these stories, which we hear in childhood, I think Uh, they wedge themselves very deeply in our consciousness. And so when the the first excavators went to Jerusalem, particularly uh, Brownlow Parker and his crowd, they knew that this was an object that captured global attention and uh, would be not only cool to find, it would be extremely lucrative to find. So in Jerusalem, uh, you have this strange meeting of of the... uh, of the prophet enterprise meeting with religious desire. And that's what makes the Ark of the Covenant in particular uh, such a hot topic. And beginning in the 1900s, uh, then into the 1980s, and even today, even recently when I was uh, in Jerusalem, I spoke with uh, this Australian who is hot on the trail of the Ark of the Covenant, and he knows where it is. And I think I think I know where he means, but I won't say because i Don't want to give away that secret.
1: (laughs) So stay tuned for the next finding.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. You never know. I mean, Jerusalem is a place that does always surprise.
1: Absolutely. I think it's probably the only city that has its own psychiatric syndrome. Uh, (laughs) The Jerusalem syndrome, where visitors feel that they have become prophets and uh, messiahs. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and this
0: this this really, I think, affects uh, people who want to dig underground in Jerusalem because they feel like they can enter into this period of of the ancient prophets, and by going underground, they can find the hidden treasures. They can unravel the secrets. Uh, these uh, you know these ideas have in, in, an incredible compelling magnetic pull for many people, particularly for uh, American Protestants, who seem to dominate uh, that field these days.
1: Well, Andrew, you've been very generous with your time and your expertise. Uh, Before I let you go, tell us what you're working on now.
0: (laughs) Well, given the pandemic, I'm, uh, I'm I'm working on a number of things that are a little more U.S. focused, but uh, I actually was just in Jerusalem recently. I'm uh, working on an assignment for National Geographic on a, a very important site uh, in the city and hope to be coming back soon to uh, do a little more reporting. And uh, I don't think I'll ever be able to get Jerusalem out of my blood now.
1: Probably not. Many of us can't. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for your important book and for being on the show today.
0: Well, it's been a pleasure, and uh, I'm happy to uh, answer any of the questions of your listeners. You can reach me at, uh, at my website, www.andrewlawler.com. Just drop me a line.
1: And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikov. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe to the Van Leer series on ideas wherever you find your podcasts. Bye-bye.